0: Please grab your Bibles, if you have them, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, where we're going to be continuing on in our Sermon on the Mount series here, wrapping up chapter 6. If you have your Bible with you, please, let's read together. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In our church, the uh, life of a child is so different from the life of an adult. And every day when you wake up as a child, you just look forward to a day that's full of excitement and you have this eager anticipation of how things are going to turn out good for you in the day. And whether that's like going to the eye doctor or to the dentist or going to your dance class or you're going to school, you know that some adult always has a smile or like a treat for you, something good that they're about to offer you. But it's interesting, as you grow up, things begin to change and you learn how to worry. You worry about what you have for lunch you worry about what your friends are going to say about your clothing Then you begin to worry about getting a's on your report card and not just g's and s's and then you worry about getting into the right school afterwards and going to college and then you worry about marrying the right person then you worry about getting a job and then you worry about keeping that job right and then it just goes on and on and on you and as you age, you start worrying about things like getting gray hair, going bald, paying your rent, all those things that your parents used to do for you, and, and you have to do them yourself. See, the adult life is full of worries and concerns because you have responsibilities. You know, it's really interesting when you think about the effect of anxiety or worry on us. In one article I read about Canadians stated that depression and anxiety cost the Canadian economy essentially over $50 billion a year. And even though North Americans are amongst the richest people in the world, we are also ranked as actually among the unhappiest as well. You know, there was a World Health Organization report in 2012 that noted that even that middle to high-income countries had actually had a far higher rate of suicide than bottom, low-income countries. In fact, The Canadian Mental Health Association states this, that by age 40, about 50% of the population will have or have had a mental illness. And furthermore, anxiety disorders continue to affect 5% of the household population. You know, anxiety really is actually part of our lives here. In fact, being wealthy actually doesn't spare you from having anxiety. Ian Black is a financial advisor for wealthy people right here in Vancouver. And he noted that in a survey that they did amongst of his rich clients it showed that actually that many of these rich people very wealthy people here in vancouver they were worried about having enough money to keep them going in retirement now it's interesting right because rich people are generally healthier have access to better medical intervention they live longer And actually, one of their main concerns is because they have longer lives, they now have to worry about stretching their retirement funds longer than the average person does. This is really interesting, right? You know, going south of the border, a survey of rich Americans actually showed this. 80% of people, 80% of people who are worth over $20 million worry about being sued, whereas only 20% of people who are under a $1 million worry about being sued. In terms of the middle class, less than half of the people who identify as middle class worry about things like identity theft. But over 75% of rich people are worried about having their identities stolen, and they actually lose sleep over this issue. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about the problems that the wealthy face. Now, I think Ecclesiastes 5.12 actually speaks rightly when it says this, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or he eats much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. See, the point is, um, truly the more that you have, the more anxious you're going to be about losing it and maintaining it. So counterintuitive if you think about it, but it's true. Now, you know, the truth matters. Our God, our Father, who is in heaven, actually knows this. He knows that we wrestle with anxiety, and a lot of what Jesus has to say all throughout the scriptures is about, do not fear, don't be anxious. See, this is not how God actually wants us to live. He wants us to actually live anxiety-free. See, do you want to understand what causes anxiety in our world? See, do you want to know how to then live free of this anxiety? I think the answer is actually found here in our passage today. Today, we're going to learn how to deal with anxiety God's way. All right? And we're going to do this by going back through our text, beginning at verse 25. Okay, look with me. The text says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, in last week's passage, we learned that disciples of Jesus are not to serve themselves by hoarding money for themselves, but they are actually to look at the world with a very generous eye and to give of their time, energy, and finances so that others might have a reflection of our generous God who does this for us. Now, by depleting your time, energy, and your money for the sake of others, the question naturally arises, what's going to happen to me if I live a lifestyle of giving. Now, Jesus' argument here begins with, therefore. In other words, therefore, he says, since you're committed to God and God is your master, don't be anxious. I know you're not going to be serving money. You're serving me instead, but I don't want you to be anxious. Why? Now, the word that is translated usually here as, Anxious, merimna'o, can also be translated as concern, and it can either be good or bad, positive or negative, depending on the context. So, for example, the same word appears in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32, when Paul says that the unmarried man is anxious or merimnao, he is concerned about the things of the Lord, basically how to please the Lord. So that's a positive example. You can actually see a negative example if you flip over to Luke chapter 10, verse 41. And that's the story in which Jesus is going to the house of Mary and Martha. And as you know, in the story, what happens is that Jesus is there. Mary sits down at his feet to listen to his teaching. Martha, however, is busy in the kitchen, getting together dishes and serving all the guests. She gets frustrated and she says to Jesus, Jesus... Can't you not at least tell my sister to come and help and do something here? Don't you see that I'm busy all by myself? And Jesus speaks to her in affectionate but firm way and says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. You are concerned about many things. And then he tells her, though, that Mary has chosen the good portion here. It's necessary and it won't be taken from her. You know, what Jesus is, isn't saying here is not saying here. He's not saying that serving people is unimportant or that you're wrong, but he's saying that here there's some priorities. When you have to choose between sitting at my feet and learning with me and fellowshipping with God and being about doing dishes, there's a primacy here. Relationship is more important than the busyness and the things of life. When it comes to sitting in the presence of God, always choose that. In other words, what's the first and the greatest commandment? That's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's to love God. And then after that, you love your neighbor as yourself. So it's about priorities. So be with God first. Now, Jesus is not saying that the things of life and the things that Martha was doing are wholly unimportant. No, Jesus understands that there are things that we need in order to live. And he highlights three of them right, in this passage. Food, drink, and clothing. Without these things in our world, we will be exposed to the elements and be cold and suffer, or without food and drink, we'll actually die from that fairly quickly. Now, when the world was created, in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that everything was good, it was perfect. Food grew everywhere and it grew easily. The Garden of Eden was a beautiful place just with an abundance everywhere. Adam and Eve didn't even need clothing because they were naked and unashamed. Everything was perfect. Really, it was an unimaginable world. I would have loved to have been there to see it. In the Garden of Eden, you didn't pay for food. You just ate everything that you wanted. There were no thorns and no thistles. It was a paradise. And one day... We as believers are told that we will be restored to the new garden of Eden, the new garden city of Eden in the new Jerusalem, where God undoes the effects of sin and makes this world completely perfect, the way that it should be, and even better. In that day, you and I, who believe in Jesus and are called to heaven, will be there in heaven's land, eating from the new trees of the garden." I mean, it's going to be amazing. We will have delicious, heavenly mango fruits. I suspect that there will be coconuts there that probably taste like cupcakes or something. You know, I've thought about myself, and I thought that, you know in this home that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for me, perhaps I'm just going to spend, a, you know, maybe a thousand years working on cows. I have this dream of actually uh, doing something to cows and feeding them with things that I could get a chocolate milk cow. Ever since I was a child, I've wanted this, that I could pull on the left side and have cold chocolate milk, and then I would pull on the right side and have warm chocolate milk coming out of it. You know, it's just, it's, it's just the, the, uh, the things that are possible in the new heavens and the earth and the infinite amount of time that we'll have some of you have heard me mention numerous times, actually, my dream of a bacon tree. Now, it's a very th- this is serious theological issue, because I know that meat tastes incredibly good, and heaven just wouldn't be heaven without the taste of meat. So the only way for this to be possible is that bacon must be able to grow on trees. And so one of the trees in the new heavens and the new earth probably has to be a bacon tree. And in that day, I will invite you to enjoy this meal with me as we have barbecues around the bacon fruit that comes from this tree to the glory of God forever. My point is this. When you think about heaven, heaven is literally a place where abundance and money grows on trees. On this earth, money does not grow on trees, but in heaven it will. See, it's a remarkable place. The Bible says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can imagine the things that God has in store for those who love Him. But here's my point. Here's my point. Heaven will be an incredible place of provision where we will want for nothing. But in this world, because Adam sinned, God said in Genesis that the ground would be cursed. Thorns and thistles would come up. It would no longer yield the fruit of the earth to you easily. But instead, by the sweat of your very brow, Adam, and all of humanity, you will eat until the day that your body breaks down ultimately and returns to the dust from which it was taken. That is the curse of sin. See, the acquiring of the necessities of life is not easy anymore, but it's toilsome and it's hard. But yet now, even in this world that is affected by sin, Jesus offers hope to his disciples and says, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. There is provision for you. And in fact, you need to understand that, as he says, life is more than food, drink, and clothing. Now, I know that we North Americans who live in this sin cursed world are so consumed with materialistic things. But even North Americans believe that there is more to life than just simply acquiring stuff. You know, the famous American psychologist Abraham Maslow, in his Hierarchy of Needs, noted that the basic human needs are things like food and clothing. However, he also noted that human needs actually go beyond these basic things, and they include things like intimacy, relationship, and at the very top of Maslow's hierarchy, he says things like self-actualization, or in other words, being able to live up to your full potential in life. Now, the, re- the reason why Maslow's hierarchy, uh, especially the top of that about self-actualization, really resonates with us is because you and I are crafted and made in the image of God. And God didn't just make us a God to spend our days wandering around, eating food and living from day to day, but he actually made us with purpose in mind, to be like him, to subdue the earth and to fill it, to think and to create. We were made to be like God. And as a result of that, this idea that we can live up to a full potential or to have a purposeful meaning all comes from the idea that we are made and crafted in His image. That's the reason why you and I, whether you're a Christian or not, feel a sense that the meaningful life is a life that is lived for something greater than oneself. Now, what's interesting is that Deep down inside, despite the fact that how many of us live selfishly and we chase after things for ourselves, padding our own pockets, we all know that deep down, the selfless life is the life that we admire and not the selfish life. That's the reason why we build monuments to people who have done great things for society, whether that's like Martin Luther King Jr. or other civil rights activists and people who are heroic. We build monuments to these people rather than people who simply made a billion dollars to pad their own pockets. See, and you can see this clearly when people are dying, what we actually believe is important. You know, Bronnie Ware is an Australian nurse who spent years actually working in palliative care, caring for patients really in the last three months of their lives. And she ended up writing their regrets down into a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And, um, and in this, actually, she included a number of these things, such as, I wish I hadn't worked so hard i wish i'd had the courage to express my feelings i wish i'd stayed in touch with my friends you know what's interesting about these It's that nobody when they're dying ever says with their last breath if only i had made a little more money i would have been happier on my deathbed i mean nobody ever says that but what do they always say it's always about relationships i wish i cultivated my relationships i wish i'd lived more purposefully see See, at death, it's, it's really clear there is much more to life than simply collecting money and provision and security for yourself. And yet, don't most of us in North America get sucked into this? Right? Every single day, we're just living from one day to the next, consumed by trying to get stuff, pay our bills and so on. I know it's important as well, but if we're not careful, you can do this to the very end of your days and then realize that you have major regrets in your life. That's not the way that you were intended to live. Now, Although it's clear that in life, of course, we do need these basic necessities. These things are important. Life is more than that. But at the same time, since we do need them, the question for us is, okay, how are we supposed to treat them? How are we supposed to not let these things unnecessarily consume us? How is it that we should not worry about them? Why should we not worry? Verse 26. Let's look again. The text says here, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and let your heavenly Father feed them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus' lesson in life, number one. How to deal with with worry, observation number one by Jesus. Stop looking at your problems and start looking up at the birds. Now, this is interesting because Jesus uses a very simple but powerful and really timeless illustration that all the cultures in the world can understand. Everybody knows what birds are. The birds of the air, obviously, don't plant seeds. They don't drive tractors. They don't build barns. They don't take out loans or mortgages. And yet, aren't they fed? Why? Jesus says, because your heavenly Father feeds them. And if people are more valuable than animals, do you not think that he will feed you? I mean, Jesus' logic is simple, but it's ironclad. Like, how can you argue with that? See, when you're worried about life's necessities, you, you pray about them. Yes, but you do this as well. Go outside for a walk. Don't just pray inside. Go out for a walk and look. Look at the common pigeon, the crow that you would normally ignore. And look at the bird as it does little birdy things, like flying and flapping its wings and pecking at the ground, right? All these little things that it does. Now, I've told some of you this story before, but I always come back to it because actually once when I was meditating on this passage, I had a bird actually poop on my car. Now, now I really dislike birds pooping on my car. It's messy. You've got to clean it up. And I suspect most of you do too, right? So a common human problem. But instead of getting annoyed, I... I prayed, and I said, God, I'm meditating on this. What do you have to show me here? I remember I had an epiphany about this, and so I wrote it down into a devotional. And I went to this group of seniors, basically, and then I preached my devotional to them on the, on the birds. And I said this to them. I said, we see birds as a nuisances that inconveniently poop on our cars, but Christ does not see them this way. Instead, he chooses the bird as an example of how God feeds us. This is absolutely astounding as I do not often see Christians praise God when birds poo on their car saying, hallelujah. For a bird to defecate like this, the Lord must have provided it a hearty meal. See, bird poo is a reminder of bird food. And bird food is a reminder that God takes care of them and if He takes care of them he will feed you and me as well. He will not leave you empty. So don't be afraid, Christian, if you live a life of radical generosity, serving your God over the God of money. Don't you ever worry that you will go without. Your master who is in heaven will see to it that you are always provided for. That is the lesson of the bird and its poo. Now, I remember after that, while preaching that, uh, there, was a, there was an elderly man who came up to me and he was just chuckling and he came to pat me and he says, "Oh, you're you're funny, Sam." And then he walked off. And I thought to myself, "Like, I'm funny? Like, no, I'm serious here, right? Don't don't you understand? You know what the bird shows you? It shows God is a provider here. And evidence of His care is everywhere. You just need to look. Just open your eyes and see." And for those of you who are outlining, I put this, okay, number one, worry is unnecessary. God is our Father. God is our provider. See, birds don't worry, and neither should you. They'll be fine because their Heavenly Father feeds them, and so also you will be fed. Are you not of more importance than them? Do you follow Jesus' logic? Now, let's continue. We have something else that we're going to learn about worry. Verse 27. And which of you, he says, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, some Bibles translate this as uh, add a single cubit to one's height. Okay, and the reason for this is that uh, in the Bible, this word that's translated here, helikia, uh, can either mean physical height or it can actually mean maturity and age. Actually, both of them, both, occur, both uh, meanings occur in our Bibles. Now, although there's some debate over whether we should take this to mean maturity as an age or it's actually about height, I think in the context it actually refers here to time, but it doesn't matter, okay? Either way, whether Jesus is talking about adding 18 inches to your height or he's talking about living longer, the point is the same. Number two, worry is useless. No matter what you do, you can't make yourself taller by worrying and you won't make yourself live longer by worrying. In fact, worry will probably make you live less long and you'll die earlier instead, all right? So that's his point. It's useless to worry. Don't do it. None of you, it accomplishes nothing. Now he's going to hop back here to another analogy from from nature. Look at this in verses twenty-eight to thirty. He says, "And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This is how to deal with the worries of life. Observation number two from Jesus, right? Stop looking at your problems, but look around at the flowers of the field. Now, last week, I said that clothing in the ancient world was very costly, right? Many people only had one set of clothes, it was expensive, and it was natural to basically worry about it. And here Jesus is using a very simple illustration from life. Again, look at the flowers. Flowers, he says, have clothes, actually, they're beautifully dressed. And we don't clothe them, but God does. Now it's interesting, right? If you ever look at macro photography shots of like roses and lilies and other beautiful flowers, you realize they're absolutely gorgeous, this perfect geometric sort of patterns and designs, the softness of their petals, these lush and brilliant, vibrant colors that just kind of like shoot out at you from all these different angles as the light sort of reflects off these flowers. You know, you think about it and you realize that these little grass things from the field are gorgeous and they're temporary. God makes them this way and People actually are so entranced by their beauty that they not only grow them, but they also, fashion designers, try to copy their designs and making floral patterns for dresses. There's so much beauty in nature. We all get this. Yet Jesus notes here that, you know what happens to the beautiful flower? It gets roasted in the oven. Now, this doesn't make sense to a lot of us here today, but in Palestine in those days, their ovens were made out of brick instead of clay. And in order sometimes when you wanted to fire up the heat in the oven really quickly, you got a bunch of grass, a bunch of hay that burns really quick and you threw it in there and boom, Right, temperature is brought up. Now, <clears throat> just imagine this. Thinking in our world, it would be like uh, this Christmas, uh, I got a beautiful piece of art from Sepide, who is the wife of Pastor Amin from Zende Church. I've never owned artwork in my life. It's gorgeous. The only piece I have. Esther and I are like, oh, we feel so grown up now. We own artwork, you know. We're like, this is a gorgeous painting. So, so, we are like, we hang it up. We had to go on YouTube and figure out how to mount a painting because never owned artwork of that size before. Beautiful piece of work of Stanley Park. Now, imagine this. Imagine I looked at that painting and I said, This is great. And I took the canvas and just started ripping shreds off of it. And I'm like This portion, I'll rip this one, I'll rip this one. People who like art or just anyone with common sense would look at it and say, What are you doing? And I would say, Well, I need to start my campfire. This stuff burns really well, right? So just rip one after another, right? I have so many strips that last me a lifetime. People look at you and say, you're crazy. Do you not see that that's beautiful art? And you're going to throw it into the fire like that? Art is meant to be hung on the walls. You're nuts. And here's my point. As beautiful as that painting is, it'd be a shame. That painting is beautiful and therefore it'd be a shame to turn it into common fuel, But when it comes to flowers and art, God says that every flower of the field, the billions of them that live only even a day, are crafted with exquisite care. They're absolutely gorgeous, and yet they're so common. And God dresses each and every one of them, though their destiny is literally to end up in your fireplace, to be used as fuel to cook your dinner. And God says, Jesus' logic is, If I spend so much time crafting such a thing, turning an exquisite beauty that's only going to be here for today and then gone tomorrow and turned into a fire, do you not think, do you not think for a moment that I will not take care of you and clothe you with what you need? If God is so rich that he can literally burn artwork, do you not think he can richly supply all of your needs? That's the logic here. That's how Jesus says that he argues. Think. Think about that. You know, the evidence for God's care, as I said earlier, is everywhere. You just need to open your eyes as you walk through this world. See, this ginormous universe actually declares, I would say, the power of God. The beauty of a sunset declares to us God's perfection. The birds with their poo actually declare to us God's provision for us. And the common flower actually proclaims his protection of us. All these things. See, we learned this. Number three. Worry is blind. When we worry, we're actually shutting our eyes to God's proof that he provides and saying, God, I know you're talking to me, but I'm not seeing anything right now. I choose not to see it. It would be like if your parents, you know, who are supporting you, told you, hey, can you just... Send some money over to your younger sibling and pay their school tuition right now. And don't worry, we'll wire you more money later. And you said to them, I can't do that. I need that money for myself. How do I know I can trust you, mom and dad? And then they'll say, What? We raised you. We spent money on you your entire life. You think we're going to cheat you? Just send them the money. You don't believe us? Here's a screenshot of our bank account. We'd only do this for our kids. Here you go $100 million. And then you say, I'm sorry, I just don't know if it'll come true. You send me the money first, and then we'll talk. See, that's what we're like with God when we worry. You know, God has showed us in nature his unlimited bank account. He says, I'm your dad, and you can't trust me to share a little of the wealth that you have with other people? You think I can't make good on my promises? I'm so rich, and you can see it everywhere. How could you not trust me? it's not just ridiculous but it's actually worthy of chastisement that's why jesus says oh you of little faith now it's important to understand what jesus means by this expression okay this expression is a synonym, basically of saying you have no faith okay and the reason we get that is if you look at matthew 17 verse 20 when jesus says and he tells us that faith the size of a mustard seed is capable of moving mountains so the idea is that, really, you saying you don't have any faith. If you had little faith, even you could move a mountain. So it's an expression that means you, you don't have any faith. Now, this expression actually appears numerous times in Matthew. So you see, for example, when his disciples are on the water, there's a big storm, and uh, they're scared. Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. When Peter's walking on the water and he starts to sink, Jesus has to tell him, you have little faith. Another time when they're worried about not having enough food, after having the five, seeing the 5,000 being fed, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, don't you understand? Now, Jesus' point in all this is that, yeah, having no food or about to drown in a stormy sea, these are all life-threatening circumstances, and, and they're, they're a reason for concern. But the point is, you need to trust him. You need to trust him when he says he's going to pull you out of these things and he won't let them overwhelm you. Certainly, certainly, we do live by bread, but the Bible is clear. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The reason that you and I eat today is because God's promise to provide for us does not fail. It's not our own ingenuity that feeds us. We are to work. There is human responsibility. But one of the means by which God provides for us is through the ordinary day-to-day labor The Bible has a lot to say about being diligent and work. But the point is, whether through our work or where we are crippled and God feeds us by miracle, the point is God takes care of us. That is the point. And we always need to remember that in our minds. So when we persist in worry, it's actually a very serious thing. You know, R.H. Malin's, I think, was right when he said, worry is practical atheism and it's an affront to God. Worry, if we persist in it and live in it and make decisions as if God is not there, is literally to call God a liar and to say you are not capable of providing what you say you can. Worry is therefore sin. I put this in your outline. Number four, worry is faithless. Now there's one more thing that we are to learn here about worry in verses 31 to 32. Look with me in the text. Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, question for us here. Why, according to Jesus, shouldn't we worry about life's necessities? The answer is because we have a Father who is in heaven, and He knows He knows. He's not ignorant. He knows that we need all of this stuff. See, worldly people who don't follow Jesus do not have the guarantee or the assurance of having a loving Father who is on their side and is willing to open their bank account for them. See, that's why Jesus explained that Gentiles actually babble when they pray. Because in their mind, whatever is out there is not necessarily for them. And if they say enough, they do enough, hopefully they complicate this mysterious force or God and it will rule in their favor. And things might, might just go well for them. But you, you don't know. That's not how Christians live. Christians look to the heavens and say, I know who's up there. It's my dad. And he's watching out for me. And he will always be there for me. My dad will never fail me. Not once, because he loves me. See, when we worry as Christians, what we are functionally saying to God is that I don't trust you as a father. You may say I'm your child, but I don't trust you as a father. And that stings. If you're a parent, that's probably one of the most hurtful things that a child could ever say to you. You may have given birth to me, but you are not my dad. You know how that hurts? It's because we all understand that being a father is not just biology. It's about relationship. And when that relationship is damaged, it goes right to the heart, right to our soul. It's one of the greatest insults that you can give. And this is what we do, brothers and sisters, to God, when we worry needlessly and we do not bring our concerns to Him. Number five, I put this in your outline. You know what worry is? Worry is worldly. As Christians, we are confident that God is our father and that he delights to actually hear his children's pleas. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 says this, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Such a good verse. Okay, so we've learned five things from this passage about worry. The Question for us is, what do we do now? What can we do to combat worry? Jesus gives us two things. There are two applications from his words here in this text. Look with me at verse 33. Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Solution number one, Jesus says, Seek the kingdom. Now, what exactly does this mean? Firstly, this does not mean you're to go around in our world searching for a secret, hidden, physical kingdom of God. That would make no sense. Okay? Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth, or his servants would fight. What this means, actually, is that we are to live under the kingship, or the rulership, or the reign of God. In other words, we are to live according to his pattern of life for us, to subject ourselves to the king's edicts. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, we have a portrait of what it looks like to live according to the king's pattern of life. All through the Sermon on the Mount, we hear, Love your enemies. Don't hate them. Pray for those who persecute you. Tell the truth. Speak honestly. Rejoice in all circumstances. Live in such a way that your light shines before others and they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven don't lust in your heart. Don't harbor anger. Forgive those who have sinned against you. Go to God for your daily needs. Don't just love those who love you, but love those even who hate you. Store up treasure in heaven. Bring all of your life to God and bring all of your God to life. Live in the exact opposite way that the people of this world live. That's what it means to live under the rulership of God. That's what it means to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. To live in a way that accords with God's righteous rules. Take all the energy that you would have spent worrying and throw it into living all out for Jesus. That's what he wants for us. And Jesus promises all these things will be added to you. Now, I don't want to be simplistic here. I think it's important to us to understand what does he mean by all things. Does this mean that Christians will never experience hunger, they will never go naked, and they'll have easy lives for the rest of their lives if you come to Jesus? And the answer to that is no. Anybody who tells you that is trying to sell you something. What about those Christians who died in famines or were jailed for their faith and intentionally starved, frozen and beaten to death? In fact, when you read Paul, Paul says, Shall famine or nakedness or sword or other things separate us from the love of God? Do you see what Paul is assuming there? He's assuming that some Christians will go hungry. Some will go naked. Question, does the Bible contradict itself? I think the answer to that is very clear. No, it does not. So how do we understand this? I think the best way to understand this is what Jesus is saying here, is that by all things, He means, I will give you everything you need to be successful in your current circumstances so that you don't sin against Me, but that you can actually live for My Kingdom's sake and glorify Me. And ordinarily speaking, that means when you need food and clothing, you will be supplied so you don't end up stealing Or dishonoring God. But when you're persecuted and you're starved and you're threatened and you're told to give up your Christian faith and they torture you, that means that in that day, all things will be God supplying you with His Spirit. And when you're dragged before governors on account of Jesus Christ, in that very hour, you will be given to you what to speak for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father who is speaking through you. In that instance, when you are being persecuted, all things include the courage and the right words to be able to speak at that time so you do not deny Jesus Christ in your faith. See, this is why Paul could say, I found the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, today, what this means for me is that if I need food and I need money to survive with my family, God will take care of those things. But if in 20 years I'm put into jail because the public turns against Christians and it is no longer permissible for me to preach the gospel and I am starved and I am tortured and urged to recant my faith, in that day what I don't need is an apple or a meal of rice. What I need the most actually is courage. The courage that only God can supply to stand for Jesus and to say, my true life is hidden with Christ in heaven. No matter what happens to me on this earth, I will be okay. See, the point Jesus is making here is God will always supply all things. So application one, how do you fight worry? You fight worry by pursuing daily kingdom living. See, the solution to worry is not thinking about it more or trying breathing exercises and all these things. Sure, that can help your body. The solution to earthly worry is actually godly kingdom activity. Not chasing after our own plans, but pursuing God, pursuing the things of God, chasing after that. And as you seek his kingdom first, God says, I'll supply all of these things to you. I'll take care of you. Now, there's one more way to combat worry, and that's given in verse 34. Look with me. The text says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, remember, the disciples' prayer that began this section on the Sermon on the Mount reminds us that we are to bring our daily needs to God. And here Jesus promises us great things in this text, but it's also important to understand that Jesus promises a realistic picture of what life is going to look like. And we can't be cavalier about the promises of God. Jesus is not saying here, as one author says, life is not going to be a picnic for us. Verse 34 says, each day, has trouble. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Guess what you're going to have in life as a Christian? You are going to have trouble. But the overall tone that Jesus establishes here is, don't worry about it. Because by God's grace, you will survive and you will live and God will take care of you. Don't worry about the future. Worry about today, how you can live for Jesus one day at a time. So the second application is this. You fight worry by bringing your daily needs and your troubles to God. You know, friends, as we wrap this up today, let me ask you, are you struggling actually with worry? I know it's a very human thing and we all fall into it. But Jesus is saying here, you don't have to. Don't do it. And I've given you many reasons why. See, as a Christian, you have God who is a father. And he cares for you very deeply. The question is, can you see it? And will you actually trust him with it? He sent his own son to die on the cross for your sins. To pay the price that you could not pay. To restore you so that you can be in right relationship with him. You were once an enemy of this God, but now you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has opened your eyes to basically say, don't look at the world as a drab place in which life is just cruel and nature is red and tooth and claw and so on. You're actually my precious sheep and the world actually resounds with testaments to my faithfulness and also my provision for you. Just open your eyes and see this child. What do you have to fear if you have me as your father? I am the good shepherd. I walk with you. I have an infinite bank account. I can supply any one of your needs in a moment's notice like this. Even though you walk through the valley, the shadow of death, you have nothing to fear because your shepherd walks with you. His rod and his staff are there to lead you, comfort you, and beat back the enemies that would threaten to take back your life. See, worry, as I just said, is unnecessary. It is useless. It is blind, it is faithless, and it is worldly. But God is not here to beat you down. He's simply here to say, believer, will you not take your cares that you carry and throw them on him? As Peter says, cast your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. See, can you trust him to take this step of faith with whatever is your biggest fear and your biggest worry right now? God is more than able to supply you. If only you will live for him and seek his kingdom first. That's what he wants you to do. Don't worry about the worries. He'll take care of those. You live for him. Live for him in a bold way that is honest and makes much of Jesus, even if it's painful. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this today, maybe you are full of worry. You do have concerns. Maybe the end of life is coming for you. You're getting older and you don't know what to do. You feel, you have a sense of your own mortality. But perhaps through friends or circumstances in your life, God has really been opening your eyes to miracles around you. Maybe you've seen beauty in unexpected places. Maybe you've felt the presence of angels or in strange circumstances that have happened in your life. And you're now contemplating, is there more to life than what I have always thought? You know what the answer to that is? God is opening your eyes. If you're listening to this right now, he's actually calling to you. He's piqued your interest and your curiosity. You are not here by chance today. And He's speaking to you and He wants you to know Him. He wants you to see the world as it actually is and to take all of your worldly cares and throw them on Him and to come to know Him as a Father. That is the delight and the joy that He wants to have in being with you. Our God is magnified and glorified as sinners come to Him in repentance and trust Him for everlasting life. If that's you, I would urge you to turn to God. Don't delay. Come to Him and say, Father, I want to know you. I'm a sinner. I need you. I've lived life my own way. It's been a mess, but today I want to follow you. If that's the desire of your heart, don't leave afterwards. I mean, send me an email. Talk to us. I want you to know how you can have a life with Jesus and to live actually worry-free because you have a God who looks out for you. you know, brothers and sisters, you know, if worldly things occupy your thoughts, that is immaturity. If you do not think that God cares about your needs, that is ignorance. But if you're told that God does care, and yet you choose to live for yourself first and always justify your own sin, that is unbelief. But God's call for you today is not to live like that but to actually trust Him. He has filled the world with evidences of His care for you. Can you trust Him as you battle through the difficulties of this life? God's call for us today is to keep calm and carry on kingdom living. For He says He will never fail to deliver on His promises. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you so much, God, for your love for us. Thank you that we can have peace and calm in our lives, not because we have great breathing exercises or we know how to clear our minds of negative thoughts, but because we have a God who loves us and is our Father. The world around us, God, the birds that fly through the air and the little flower that we pass by every single day is a testament, God, to your magnificent power and your enormous care for us. So, Father, help us, God, to see and live by faith, to look at all these evidences that you have given us of just how willing you are to care for us, if only we will turn to you. Father, I pray, O God, that you would help us trust you in these seemingly huge problems in our lives as we too look at the wind and the waves and are concerned that the storm is going to sink our ship. Help us to look to you, Jesus, and not be people of little faith. Father, would you do this for us? Would you make much of yourselves? Would you give us joy, O God, as we trust you? all because we know that you love us as you sent your son to die on the cross for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.